I love the concept of mentorship, period. I think it's such an engaging and uh, productive form of teaching. Rules should only be in place to positively serve a cause. Having rules that are a detriment to everybody's productivity is not even worth having in a way because you're, you're hampering people from being able to actually produce and contribute to a production. Specifically for the GSM role, something that I've thought about is I do feel like there needs to be a bit more of an elevation in terms of the knowledge that they're given. Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast, and hello, we're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Robb. On this episode, we'll be talking to Nathan Grimoulis, who is also a very good friend of mine about stage management. Nathan is a stage manager with broad international experience, most recently working as a general stage manager for Cirque du Soleil's CUSA. Welcome, Nathan. Hey, guys. It's so great to be here. I've been so excited to do more podcast and webinar stuff with Theatre Art Life. So it's, it's really nice to get a, a one-on-two like this. And tell us right now where you are uh, in the world talking to us. I am from Chicago right now. Been here for the past few months since touring on Kuza was closed, as were everything entertainment-wise. Such an interesting time to kind of be watching and experiencing and listening to the conversations people are having about our craft and what we do, seeing as we can't actually practice it. But um, it's been nice to be in the States. There's also a lot of stuff going on here at the moment, which is really nice to be a part of and, and witness all of those conversations. It's definitely, a, it's just definitely a really interesting time. So digging into the, the details of, of our craft that we speak of, tell us in your terms, what is a stage manager and what does a stage manager do? I love this question because a lot of the time these questions are asked amongst stage managers themselves and it's like if you knew what you were doing, you think you wouldn't have to ask the question. But (laughs) for some reason it comes up and I love it because it means that for me, I think I kind of step back from the nitty-gritty tasks and details of the job. It's kind of like the idea to, to question the job itself I think is intrinsically part of the nature of a really strong stage manager, someone who is an apt listener, someone who practices critical thinking, a lot of judgment making and, and passing and passing really productive and, and kind of conducive judgments as well to a production. So as I guess as an individual, for me, a stage manager is someone who is kind of aware that they're in a place that is always changing something that's more reactive and I guess what they bring to the plate is the ability to just really understand a production in front of them, understand the different natures of the people that they work with within either artistic departments or technical departments and cast and kind of really being able to, to read situation and, and pass kind of not, as non-biased as possible judge, judgments to uh, kind of get things done as they need to get done, whether that's in show, out of show, pre-planning, creations, all that kind of stuff. So you judge, but you don't judge. In a way, yeah. I guess for, for me, I've been thinking about this quite a lot. It's kind of like this idea of, it's a conversation that happens where we say, don't want to pass judgment or we don't want to be judgmental and we don't want to kind of have preconceived notions and thoughts about things. But I kind of realized at some point along the way that that actually 
that honing the ability to make judgments because making judgments is inevitable. That's what, what you're doing. You have a bunch of variables, you have a bunch of problems, a bunch of scenarios, and you kind of have to calculate and sometimes ahead of time based on probabilities of risk and, and kind of the nature of the market that you're in if you're touring or the size of the production, you, you do have to judge like moment to moment uh, and kind of trust that your ability to do so is going to be conducive to the whole. So it's kind of in some way like a selfless judgmental perspective, if that even makes sense. Well, I think you're judging the situation, not judging the people or the like the things around you. You're not sort of when you the word is the word judgment has a very sort of negative connotation to it. I think it may be the wrong word to use, but the judgment system taking the day-to-day circumstances and moving the show forward with your best judgment, you know, as opposed to judging other people. That's that's certainly not the the yeah, well, the, the premise of it. But um <laughs> No, it's interesting because, you know, it is such a very varied role and you do have to sit on your uh, morals and also your way of working to hang on to it as you make decisions moving forward and uh, for the best of the production, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely worth noting that uh, stage managers are not in a position to just be terrible people who cast judgment on people, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um I guess uh, talking more about like the kind of the person of like who the stage manager is rather than what they do brought to mind ideas of qualities that help or have helped me kind of sustain this position within the industry because I know that a lot of people can can kind of pass through stage management on their way to something else or they can fall back on it from something else that was a main and I think something that's really shone brightly out of the qualities of of a stage manager would definitely be resilience just to be able to even though we try to have a work life balance we try to you know instill breaks throughout the day or try to somehow kind of manage our workload week to week there definitely has to be a tenacity for quite a lot of resilience because it's inevitable that you're going to have moments of conflict you're going to have moments of really unexpected things coming your way that you just have to power through and you kind of don't really have a choice when when it comes to the crunch you do have to just power through sometimes so i think that that resilience to be able to take all of that on but also again that back seat of it doesn't really reflect anything on you. You just have the appropriate skills to be able to dig everyone out of the problem that they're in and kind of continually, I guess, allow everything to float up. So you're speaking about like how people pass through stage management, but you also came from a sound background, right? And this then is you very stayed. True. <laughs> <laughs> this is very, very true. I guess my first uh my first involvement in anything that had to do with live entertainment on a stage would probably have been back in high school. I played piano and uh, me and my music partner at the time, his name was Paul, he played drums. We did this little piano drum duo and we I loved being on stage and it was really fun to do that. But the thing that really piqued my interest was everything that was happening behind the scenes. The consoles being set up, the speaker arrays, how kind of the sound worked in the auditorium all that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, sound would be, I thought that would be my path. I applied and got into a technical college before finishing my high school certificate. So I kind of, I focused hard on music and English, but I kind of bummed out of the like maths and science stuff because I thought, oh, I, I know what my future is going to be. And 
oh man, maybe second year into that course, it was kind of like, is this actually right for me? Is this, I had to ask myself the question, like, I'm not as good as this as other people. So should this really be something that I should be pursuing? Even though I love the craft, not being good at something doesn't really give you that kind of perpetual joy out of doing something that you excel at or doing something you succeed in because either you have a natural knack or you've worked really hard to attain the skills to continue to thrive in that, I guess, facet of the industry. So yeah, sound was was short-lived, but um, I worked a little bit after I finished college for a few months at a reception center and I thought to myself, never again. It was just uh, like, like, Praise be to all those soundies out there because it was tough. It was really tough. And uh, yeah, I thought <laughs> at that time I was kind of working in radio a little bit as well, doing some podcast and editing work. And through that, I started volunteering at some of the live gigs that were happening through the radio station. And I kind of saw this stage management thing that I had no idea about. I hadn't really Googled what the job was. I didn't really, I hadn't met or heard of anyone who was a stage manager before and kind of just got roped in from like the underground culture scene and just started to build up from there and kind of understand that there were a lot of things to learn from a technical perspective in terms of jargon and kind of the discipline itself. But I I really felt that my nature was really allowing me to kind of propel through that in terms of being very compassionate, very listening and very open to other people's ideas and really considering the production a collaboration rather than one person who controls every aspect of it. It really is, it really is teamwork. And I think that's something that I've kind of carried through, even though I may not have come from like a, a, an educated background in terms of, in terms of stage management and theatre arts. What do you see as your attributes that uh, took you through from, um, you know, beginning stage manager and now obviously you're a general stage manager, so you're kind of ahead of a team of stage management with Sector Soleil. So that's quite a trajectory in, in quite a relatively short time. And, and what do you, I already know the answer to this question because I can answer it for you, but I'm going to ask you, in your opinion, <laughs> um, what, what do you see there was about yourself that made you go from that level right up to the to one of the sort of leading positions in in the entertainment industry it is a it is a dense path but it's a path worth traveling and definitely to point out one little part of that of that question was that it definitely was in a relatively short period of time i remember kind of first starting out doing like small stuff in sydney like little gigs and then i remember the first time i got to work on splendor in the grass which was like massive music festival more than New South Wales like really really beautiful experience and I thought wow like I didn't even expect to kind of I didn't expect to be carried by the industry in the way that I was just by just by being valued and valuing the people that I was working with and it was kind of it's a tight-knit community and entertainment in Australia really being surrounded by the people that you want to work with really kind of helped kind of ease me into it but then once things got really serious once I left Australia Macau to join House of Dancing Water, that was like small fish in a gigantic pond. It was like this crazy step up. And then from there to have taken the opportunities that I'm so grateful to have been given, it was kind of everything kind of does hang on this pivot point where I realized that there was something fundamental in me, 
not necessarily that needed to change, but I would say it was more of a shift, like kind of a shift of perspective of who I was and who the people were around me, a kind of understanding of so many things are so much bigger than just us. Almost everything is bigger than just just us as an individual. So kind of, I guess there was an element of maturation in terms of understanding what I could contribute, but also trusting myself and being confident in that the ideas and the the ideas that I had and the decisions that I was making were actually the best decisions that could be made. And I think that was a huge hurdle of confidence because I kind of always needed a little bit of reassurance that I was on the right track in terms of what I was doing. I kind of really liked getting feedback from superiors and that was a really common thread throughout all of my working history. But once I once I could kind of step out of that and realize that I knew enough, I could trust myself enough, I just needed to focus on that and shift my perspective to just be looking at that rather than being overly social and kind of thinking of work as maybe a second at times or kind of thinking less about the the direct responsibility of a stage manager because I worked in such a large team and really kind of starting to own my own things, but also the things of those around me, owning all of the decisions of the artistic department, understanding that we needed to be a cohesive whole, standing by each other and helping each other solve problems. It was kind of a very different perspective from kind of just, not just like following orders and and not really thinking for yourself, but I guess just th- yeah, thinking about things on a deeper level. I don't know if I can if I can go further with that. It's it's somewhat it's somewhat abstract, which I found very interesting for a craft that can be. Uh, quite mathematical and literal with dealing with schedules, dealing with kind of routine performances or schedule changes, that kind of stuff. So I found that really interesting. So you mentioned that the people that were around you were a big influence and like people above you would be, you would be turning to them to ask for question and feedback. What are your thoughts on mentoring? Like, would you look at them as mentors would you look at other people around you and try to help them out? I love the concept of mentorship, period. I think it's such an engaging and uh, productive form of teaching. Firstly, I would, I would definitely draw the, the distinction like, of, of like the mentee-mentor relationship. Something that's close but I think is often confused is this idea of like the trainer and trainee relationship or a traineeship versus a, a, a mentorship kind of thing. And I guess one's potentially like, way more formal than the other but I think in a kind of a a trainee situation your your main goals are imparting actual knowledge that someone needs and giving someone the tools so that they kind of know the way that something the the way that that more of a you know cause and effect kind of teaching method whereas mentoring is kind of like a bit more steering someone in a certain direction but really that direction is ultimately for them to be able to make their own decisions. You don't want to be making decisions for the mentee, but you want to kind of be encouraging them to, to think about things and, and drawing their own conclusions from the facts that are around them. You want to help, you want to help like illuminate those things around them. So I think I was so, so, so lucky to have Anna as my boss because that was like a real treat because that was exactly her approach to teaching. It was very much, I remember... I never really got called into the office for a certain show call because if I did something a bit on the, uh, you know, if I did something not quite right, I would be in 
her office straight away because I would want to just talk about my experience of having been through that with her to then kind of understand why I myself got to that point. So to try and understand how I could improve rather than what's the right answer in this situation. And kind of that was, I felt that was really invited because I knew that our relationship was definitely more of that on that, on that mental level. So yeah, not, not so much asking for, for direct answers, but kind of helping me, helping me realize what already was true. If, if that kind of makes sense as well. Yeah, and I think that you know the fascinating part, and also as as a manager, I also learnt as as we, you know, from you and also the other people that were in the department. Uh, I think I be, when I be, first began to be a stage manager, it was like this is the way to be a stage manager, and the, and and that's the way we move forward. And when you manage a team for a long period of time, you realise that that's impossible for people to live in the model of the way that you stage manage. So what's a fascinating evolution of that is is helping other stage managers forge a path that's not necessarily identical to how you stage manage or whatever, but to double down on the strengths that they do have and um, and create a cohesive team within that uh, uh, environment and there was it's, it's interesting because you know when you've got a, a bunch of stage managers and you don't always have that luxury on smaller shows you've got one or two people but when you've got a bunch you're creating a, a dynamic between everybody's skills and um, and their strengths and weaknesses and, and creating a balance within all of those things but it's just an interesting thing because you know that's what I think it's really hard to define stage management because uh, each person has to bring a lot of themselves to that job it's not just I program lights or I you know it's it's a very intangible uh, craft in the fact that how it gets done is 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 a reflection of that person and and that's why you really need to allow people to have their own path because they won't feel comfortable in a path that you're digging out for them you're just sort of clearing the trees and then they're going to find the path themselves you know for sure, for sure. And I think after what we mentioned before about that, like that kind of pivot point of maturation that kind of lent me towards really following stage management, I guess we could really sum it up as just taking it more seriously. I guess that would probably be the easiest, most colloquial way to wrap that up. But uh, GSMing on Kusa was kind of what you were saying just then when you're putting together a team and we weren't massive by any means, but we were a team of two and then we had fly-in. So more often than not, we would have a three-person team because it was a large show and we were afforded that luxury. Some shows, some big tubs weren't. They had to deal with just a GSM and an SM. So we were lucky when we had the third. And when we did have the three, it was kind of a really interesting experience because I think me by nature, naturally, I'm a bit of a rule breaker and not in the way where it's like I'm intentionally breaking rules for the thrill of it, but I understand that rules are on, rules should only be in place to positively serve a cause. Having rules that are a detriment to everybody's productivity is not even worth having in a way because you're, you're hampering people from being able to actually produce and contribute to a production. So I found little things like who collected the sign-in sheet, whether it was a, a, attached to certain tracks or plots backstage or who did the lineup board versus who imported data to Aurora. Kind of in a two-person team, this was very, uh, very obvious because you didn't really have time to mess around with that because someone always had to call, someone always had to be backstage. So we, we almost never had shows off for, uh, as an example, and we had trainings and office stuff to do during the day. But with three, all of a sudden, it became this thing of like, 
well, that rule applies to this kind of, I guess, paradigm. And so if we have a different paradigm, we can completely break and change the rules to make them more productive and better serve us so that people can have longer breaks, people can start later, people can have more productive shows off to actually get stuff done that needs to be done because we're only in a city for five weeks. Kind of understanding where people's strengths were was definitely what I realized as kind of the main, the main aim of the GSM, which was appropriately kind of place people where they need to be, where they can flourish and where their kind of skills are highlighted. So not only will they do great work, but everyone will recognize them for the great work that they're doing, but also allow for that to be a conversation and collaboration. Someone might reveal that they really don't like doing a certain task and they know they'll do it if there's no other option. But if we can make it so they don't have to do that, then that's fine. And if you're trialing something city to city, I found that it was much easier in touring to be able to play with these because by the time you leave a city and go to the next one, you're so slammed by that first pre-production and premiere week that you kind of just do whatever's easiest and whatever's best to get through. And then again, you have this moment of how did that work last city? How will it work this city? The hours of the shows are different. Our, our kind of between show time is different. So will it work again? And then all of a sudden you're fostering this kind of yeah collaborative energy where everyone feels like they just own the production in front of them and people can contribute the skills that they want to contribute because Everyone knows when they're better at something than someone else is. I know it's kind of a bit crude to say that, and we, we definitely don't kind of say that in an open setting in an office. But I think in not a negative way to disrespect other people around us, but we know what our, what our strengths are. It's a question in interviews when you go for a job. Like we, we inherently know those things. And when you have the opportunity to showcase them, you're going to do a great job. And everyone else is going to see that you're enjoying what you're doing as well. So it's kind of, it's interesting what you mentioned about that, putting a team together and having people kind of bounce off each other and creating that environment around you. Because I think it's just, it spirals up into, into so many positive things. Absolutely. I think it's the, it's the real foundation of a successful team and then, uh, you know, ultimately a successful, well-functioning show if stage management are at the centre of it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on safety, what do you think? And obviously Cirque du Soleil and, and even House of Dancing Order, you know, we dealt with a lot of aspects that were uh, surrounding safety, you know, and that's, that is that is a, a level up and a skill that is not as, I mean, everybody has to deal with safety in any realm of theatrical work, but I think the stakes are much higher in, in the circus realm, you know. So what do you see your role as a stage manager in, in enforcing safety? And I, I realise that probably that might vary from uh, company to company in terms of how involved stage management is in that. So tell us about that. For sure, for sure. This one's, uh, I think this is kind of in terms of the, I guess in terms of the, the nitty-gritty details of, of what a stage manager is responsible for, I think this is, it has to be highly as easily the most important. I think just from my experiences of different kinds of accidents and tragedies that have happened in the industry and that are that are an intrinsic part of circus, I'm speaking on circus specifically, it's kind of a very intrinsic part of how we approach every single situation. Kind of risk and safety is first and foremost just because just because of the nature of what people are doing on stage. And I think as a as a stage manager, there's this interesting feeling of being very deeply and inherently responsible for things that happen on that stage. We have the word stage in in the title of our jobs as just from the from a really simple from a really simple place. 
And so I think there's kind of, there's two things at play. There's what we actually are responsible for or based on our production and based on the people that work around us, how we appropriately delegate the responsibility, but also the authority when it comes to safety, when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to steering projects like integrations or any kind of technical change out, for example. And then on the other side, there's the personal aspect of how responsible do you feel personally as a person just doing their job, being in a position that would be filled by absolutely anyone else. So I think for, for me, there's kind of that, I guess that's my baseline. That's where I start from. There's a sense of individually, I'm kind of somewhat detached. Otherwise, I feel like my involvement would supersede what I am actually uh, authorized to contribute because we have technical directors, we have heads of departments, we have artistic departments, artistic directors, we have the artists that's putting themselves at risk. It might be their apparatus, it might be a purchased apparatus. There are like so many different variables and individuals that it's kind of like a very, very thick web. And I think coming to that web with the clear head of somewhat with a step back as I need to kind of implement what my duty is here rather than what I think I should be implementing. And I think that's a, that's a good baseline. And then from there, it kind of does evolve into kind of more ethical and moral questions, I guess, when it comes to, for example, uh, acts being cancelled during intermission for Act 2, I think was one that I particularly had to deal with a lot that I didn't have experience with as Dancing Water was only a a one-act show, it was just one, one and a half hour performance. So kind of having variables change, but in the middle of the show and how that impacts people's safety in terms of just their ability to focus on well-being. And then also understanding how adaptable different performers are from each other was a, a really big moment where it was kind of like, well, one blanket fits all might not always be the most apt solution because people respond differently to receiving notes at the, at the time that they've just come on stage, come off stage, sorry, versus receiving notes just before they went on stage or, or something like that. So people are kind of really, really different. And I think well, I'll, I'll speak for me, actually, I won't, I, won't, I won't generalize too much because I think it's a very, uh, like, it's just an interesting subject that everyone has a different opinion on. For me, I kind of feel that safety goes from the individual, the, the personal well-being of the, of the performer, let's say, as an example, and kind of their state and, and how they're, wh where they're at in terms of what they're contributing, all the way up to the uh, maintenance and upkeep of the equipment that they're using and the theatre that they're operating within. So it's a really, really huge kind of breadth, I guess, of variables there to, to take note of. And for me personally, I might not immediately know what's going on in someone's personal life just because there are so many people on a show and I tend to be a little bit of a private person as well and I respect other people's privacy too. However, I know that I have resources like an artistic director or an, or an artistic coordinator, an assistant AD, something like that, that might know people more intimately so that when something comes up that involves a certain group of people or an individual, I can harness these resources to know more. And I feel like knowing the most that you can is the best that you can do when it comes to safety. It's just knowing as much as you can and cover as many of those variables as possible and definitely collaborate with other people that know more than you do in their given avenue, whether that's a technician or whether that's the spouse of a performer that you happen to be friends with. 
for as another example. Like it's kind of, I feel like it's uh, personally, that's what I think. I think there is somewhat innate kind of responsibility to know as much as you can and then make judgments based on a specific situation to, to decide whether it's safe or unsafe in collaboration with other people that have the technical knowledge, that have other intrin- intrinsic knowledge that you might not be privy to as well. So there's, there's those two layers, I guess. I, I guess that's just a very personal kind of perspective on it. I think, though, for me, it's kind of like the three, there's almost three layers. You've got your training and the safety procedures and the standard operating procedures and all of the technical things that you're supposed to do when something goes wrong, right, especially from a safety mm-hmm. perspective, that what's mm-hmm. on paper, right? And that's a great foundation and they are, it's worthwhile. And then you've got the situation that you're talking about with knowing the show and knowing the cast and knowing, the, you know, maybe somebody's personal situation and the environment in which that decision in terms of safety has to take place and then there's you as an individual with your depth and breadth of history your um, experience and your uh, what you're bringing to the table to make that judgment so and obviously the top one where your your response to that situation is based on basically those three things the foundational training because like how many times have we looked at a standard operating procedure and then something happens in a show and that like you may as well throw that SOP out the window like it doesn't mean anything because it's complete like it's a completely new situation but there are steps in that SOP that even if the rules change you still go through those steps and you and you work through that situation from another perspective and that foundation is important and I and I feel like it's, it's sometimes it's those everybody feels that those foundations are very laborious and and stuff but you can't underestimate what that innate uh, foundation it does give you when you're faced with a new situation. Absolutely. And then like knowing everybody on that second level and knowing the current situation or that given nuance in that particular city for that particular show with that particular equipment and that particular setup and that person's coming back from an ankle injury and et cetera, et cetera, all of that compounds. And then there's you making those judgments as, as in terms of based on your experience. And I think the more that you do that and you probably find that as well, is the more that you are in that position to make those judgments and make those calls, uh, the more exposure you have to that, the the more comfortable you are with t- assuming that position in this from a safety perspective. Would you agree? Yeah, for sure. I think it's exactly like exercising a muscle for fitness, like mm-hmm. going through those situations and being exposed to, to moments where you do have to kind of break stuff apart and rebuild it really, really quickly is what gives you that kind of elasticity to just really react to situations, which is super, super beneficial if you're calling a show. That's like where that that ability to bounce off information that you've just been exposed to, whether that's visual, oral, anything, the ability to construct something to to just react quickly and justly and 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 neatly is can really only come with a, a lot of repetition in some kind of way. Um, what you mentioned before about foundation was uh, definitely definitely triggered something in me, which was the idea that, as well as some people maybe thinking it's you know it's it's kind of like sometimes they might be super boring or like super convoluted or or whatnot. And every there's always an opportunity to change an operating procedure if it does seem to be kind of hindering people to be able to perform a rescue. Uh, obviously, something like that. Um, kind of. Dis- disregarding the SOP and and tending to go off script off script more often, also is just, uh, kind of at the detriment to everyone else because a, an SOP is kind of so broad 
breaching in terms of all of the departments that kind of play a role inside this bigger narrative of, of when an emergency happens on stage, let's say. Everyone has a task to perform and it's almost like our responsibility to, to honour those tasks because it triggers other people to do certain things as well and it kind of it keeps the energy calm when everyone is knows what they need to do and and does those things really mm. like that's kind of i think what really keeps the energy calm and i guess as the stage manager once once for for me anyway like the the initial roll off of the procedure has happened kind of i guess kind of how it was happening in Cirque was we would facilitate the show stop as safely as possible, kind of bring everything to a halt. Certain things get set on comms, people react to those things, they go on stage, lights change, everything goes on. And then from that point on, you're really detached as a show caller from what's happening on stage. But that doesn't mean that you're not useful because as soon as you start to hear people kind of panicking or going off script or things starting to, to need to, to change on the fly, you can really ascertain just by listening and being calm whether things might be working in the wrong direction or whether people might be working against themselves because they didn't think of this or that. You can kind of be really useful in, in that situation as well. I think with what you've said previously about uh, breaking the rules and now all this conversation on SOPs and whether we follow or not and what happens, who we trigger, who we don't trigger when we follow the SOP or we call a certain procedure, it's also the importance of revising those documents and making sure all our information and documentation and our procedures and our trainings and safety scenarios and everything is up to date to what we do and the different variables that we can get. Is it a show with three performers on stage? Is it two? Is it 10? Is this version A, version B, version C of the show? So where are we at at that point but yeah so are there times where you wish you know or had some training in psychology since you are the one that are, is conducting the show so to speak i love this question this is a good one um i actually applied for psychology uh for university it was my number one on my <laughs> on my application I knew I wasn't going because I had this this other thing lined up but it, it was number one on it I was always really really fascinated in kind of how we think and and kind of the uh, I guess the the documented study of the human mind you know there's there's a lot of other studies of the human mind that are a lot more abstract or say spiritual but this kind of more of the scientific and clinical approach I guess really kind of uh uh really triggered something me i think kind of i think a kind of a basic understanding of psychology is actually really accessible and i would really encourage everyone to kind of to look into that because i think there's an element of of self reflection in in the practice of psychology in terms of you know, you're the individual that's interacting with the other. And kind of knowing that first is really beneficial. So it's kind of having a deeper training or understanding of it. I think, yeah, I've always, I've always wanted to kind of know more. And I guess that's inspired me to, to follow other little paths in my spare time to expand my knowledge on society and humans, I guess, whether it's like really reading different kinds of religious material to kind of understand cultural cross-sections a little bit better or just to kind of expand my mind there or whether it's more like introspective and and spiritual knowledge for myself or more kind of new age conceptual thinking to to enhance the way that I can kind of think about myself I guess 
Sounds like we should come up with a psychology course for stage management and technicians. So, uh, live entertainment people. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. It could just be a little <laughs> module, you know, a little module in the course. <laughs> well, we all we all work with people, right? And the success sure. of a show re- relies on people coming together and uh, the depth and breadth of that psychology, uh, you know, and I've seen it in good shows and bad shows. You know, I've, I am a firm believer that the quality of the end product is dependent on a, on a cohesive and collaborative team. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm just actually reading uh, the book, The Song of Spider-Man. Have you read that? No, no, right. what's that? Oh, it's about the yeah, the the Broadway show with uh, um, that didn't go so well. And it, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll send you the the details. You should you should read the blurb, but it's already hilarious, and it's written from the point of view of the writer. And it has you know because it okay. worked with you two and Julie Taymor. Um, and it goes through this bumbling sort of uh, way that the the show is being put together and you can see the train wreck coming, you know, um, mm-hmm. from a while away. And the, from his perspective, I guess, uh, maybe people, I may, it may speak out of turn because people may think very differently of me, but especially when they talk about, you know, having done all of the automation and all of the circus stuff that we've done, when you, when you look at the way they were approaching some of the things they were doing in the Spider-Man show, on a Broadway show, I mean, it was so ambitious and... Oh. Okay. And also personal relationships come into play with that and it's oh. just it's so interesting. You would really, really, really enjoy it, I think. Uh, I'm I'm I was on the ferry yesterday just giggling at the whole <laughs> a whole it was fantastic. So I feel that like, sorry, go ahead, Anna. Do, oh really? I'd like to see. I'm going to have to look that up. But yeah, and and I and it's, it's a big conversation for me as well, especially here in Asia, you know, there's this uh, not to go off topic too much, but it's mm. it's important to to make good products and it's important to have a good team and and a lot of the time there's a lot of Chinese investors looking to make big shows in this part of the world and they're pulling a team together without understanding the nuances of of what it takes to make a quality team and are those right people in the right positions and so the end result becomes quite and then there's a lot of influence and control about uh, the the, sure. the the uh, the funding that comes into that um, and and how and their creative input and really. It's a minefield. It's a minefield. Mm-hmm. And um, and so always at the centre of any show, uh, stage management, they're not seen as the designer and they're not seen as the director and they're not seen as the star on stage. Mm. But they're always a conduit in that mix. And it is a very important conduit, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think as well, like the, that, 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 I guess that, um, I find that that remark gets used quite often in terms of like the the stage manager of this kind of you know something like you know if you if you don't hear or see the stage manager they're doing their job kind of idea like the the not see not heard everything's running smoothly and that's kind of to their credit I think there's a lot of people that kind of really do value and respect stage managers and really do kind of vocalize that on a on a daily basis too I think there's a lot of times where people kind of are really grateful and really thankful that you're around and you're contributing. But I, I do sometimes think that there's a bit of a, it's a bit of a very kind of slippery slope that we sometimes fall into this kind of category of being underappreciated or kind of not having people really know the the worth of our contribution or something like that. I think it's it's something that's felt probably amongst everyone that's backstage, to be honest, but not just not just stage managers. But I think it's kind of like, bringing this into the the concept of psychology 
it's all connected. Um, kind of having this, uh, I guess, having this intrinsic knowledge of how you operate and how you're you're triggered by certain things and where you find that you're kind of when your dark thoughts creep in or where you start to lose a bit of confidence in yourself or where you do feel yourself kind of buckling a bit understanding when that's happening and why that's happening and then having the answers to rebuttal that in the moment and say actually no like i am i am really valued i am people are really grateful that i'm here there's so much that i do contribute there's so much that i that i bring to this table is kind of i guess kind of taking that from a psychological perspective has kind of been a lot more beneficial for for me personally and to just to kind of just to combat the like mini burnouts that happen here and there just from being frazzled sometimes because it just happens. Mm. What's the most, what do, you, what do you like most about the job? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the, I like the pregnant pause before the answer of this question. <laughs> it's necessary because, ah, uh, what do I like about it? I think because I really, really like to be helpful. I really like being useful, I guess. And, and that's in my personal life in, in just with the people around me and the friends that I have and family and all this. And I like being helpful in some way. And I guess on top of that, I really like intellectualizing things. I love being a critical thinker and I love when I get a piece of information. I almost never believe anything first, first up when it's offered to me. I'm kind of in really, really deep skeptic in a way. And I guess that mixed with this need and craving to be useful and helpful are just two things that are super satisfied by this <laughs> job. It's almost like a, it almost is kind of like it, it really allows me to be the person that I want to be. It's actually more than the job itself. It's what the job offers me as, as a human being. It allows me to really challenges me to, to always practice compassion, to like always really, really put myself in other people's shoes and see where they're coming from. and and it really trains me to not be so sensitive as well and not take criticism of a product as a direct impact, a, a direct reflection of, of my worth as a human. And that's really challenging, especially when that comes a lot, when things are going wrong. For example, like being in a tough market weather-wise where the tent temperature is just up and down in every corner of the tent from the dressing rooms to, to front of house and understanding the kind of difficulties and the the difficulties that people experience while they're trying to do something acrobatic on stage when the weather really affects that. And then knowing that I'm doing my best, but not being able to control the weather, same as the site crew, they're all doing their best and knowing, having the opportunity as well to see that everyone really is trying their best. There's no one that kind of sets out in the morning to say, I'm going to bring this show down today. Like no one's really, <laughs> I don't think anyone's doing that. Maybe, maybe there are people that I, uh, I think maybe there's one person that I've met that was like that a long, long time ago. <laughs> but um, but I don't think that's that's definitely not the norm. Most of the people are somewhere because in in, in entertainment, I'd like to believe they're there because they're passionate about it and they want to contribute and they want to do well. And being able to see that all of the time also kind of makes me more hopeful as a person too. So I think it's very selfish what I love about this job. It really is all of the, I guess, the personality the personality quirks to it when it's being practiced the way that I, I believe an effective stage manager practices, which is kind of this uh, more, of a, more of a cooperative, collaborative leader in a way. 
There's a lot of talk in stage management circles about the, the sort of the term servant leadership. So where you serve mm-hmm. all of these departments, but you're actually a leader. And I really like that um, that concept because I think it, it comes from a place of humbleness, you know. But I also wanted to point out that I really like your um you're you're a skeptic and you're very critical about every process and I noticed that about you when when I worked with you how how like whatever anything was put out you'd sit back and you'd think about it first you're like actually <laughs> you can see that mind process going through your mind whenever you're like and but in that the two things I also want to say that what is wonderful about that reflex is you know when you ask that question is like well why do we do it that way a lot of those, you know, from somebody who built the show and then it came, it came, it's forged in fire, right? Like you build a show and, it, and you just go in that direction until it's done. And mm-hmm. some of those processes are not always the best process. So when you've got somebody coming in and going, well, could we do it differently? Yeah, we could. How about this way? And it's such a beneficial and, you know, the department grew over time and it became better and better and not because of anything that I brought to it. It's because of all the things that the people who came into the department brought to the to the show, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the, the second thing I want to say on that, there's there's two ways to do about to do that, you know, to question things can be done in a very negative way and can be perceived in a negative way. But in terms of a maturity and question things in a, in a, in a, in a way that is not deemed threatening to the team around them, it, it's, that's an approach, right, and takes a maturity from, from, from the person's point of view to introduce that new concept without, um, uh, without other people getting defensive or well, you're doing it the wrong way or why are we doing it this way. You know, that approach is also a very sensitive thing and I think you do that really well. Even if it's kind of frustrating because you're like, damn it, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And I think, I think the reason that it can be frustrating is what I, th- I, don't, I don't, this might be a massive generalization that I'm about to go down the path of, maybe I shouldn't. But um, what, I, what I notice is that sometimes people might think that, the, what I think, when we're having a conversation with someone, when we're questioning something that someone's giving us, for example, what we're talking about now, it's like the frustration arises when either party kind of doesn't understand the other's intentions. So kind of because of the way that I work is very, very similar to the way that I am. I am very curious about the world. I challenge everything. I challenge my parents. I've always challenge my parents I challenge authority not in a negative way but like definitely in a way that kind of when I see that something is unjust or not right I at least want to understand it before I submit to it so it's kind of the journey for me is is really important in all of my interactions I guess in society and so that people know that about me so I think that when I do come with some questions and when I question a a product or a process it's not really taken in a negative way. It may be because I'm, I'm, I'm who I am, but I think it's also kind of my, I'm quite transparent with my intentions. I, I do kind of vocalize, I do vocalize my passion in the product that, in the project that I'm on. And I do kind of vocalize my frustrations as well, but in a very kind of rationalized and packaged way. When I share moments of defeat, I already, I can at the same time share what's going to take me out of that. I kind of, I, I bring like a full, I bring a full conversation when I'm, when I'm speaking to someone, I kind of have it all there kind of, and I hash it out with that person as well. And I think some people that might be a little bit more reserved, which is not necessarily a bad thing, their comments and their, their resistance or their questioning, sorry, their questioning of things might be seen as resistance 
because they're not so transparent with their intentions because either they don't know how to be or they don't want to be. And that's just a different style for them. And that's just who they are. And they kind of will, we might have this attitude of, well, I'll rise above the way that I'm taken. But that's, a, I think, a really challenging path as a stage manager because you're talking to different kinds of people every two minutes and it's mostly about important information that you need to retain. So it's kind of like, it's a bit of an uphill battle, I think, taken from that. We do have to kind of, I think, concede that we have certain flaws and faults and that might be the way that we communicate and really endeavour to change that just for the harmony of uh, for our inner self and the harmony of the environment that we have to lead. Mm. No, I, 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 I think you're right. I think you, because you were known to, I remember having equally heated discussions over an SOP as well as <laughs> larger topics of the world of climate change. Oh, for sure, right. <laughs> and, 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 and racism and politics and, you know, Everything. so the level, of, the level of debate didn't stop within the department. It went right up to global. I mean, I think we solved all the world's issues from the little corner of the hill, Easily. although we couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a meme or a post the other day online which was like, just replace everyone in, like, parliament politicians with stage managers just (laughs) (laughs) was like yeah I was like I'm not too sure it depends who (laughs) (laughs) so would you change anything then either from stage management world or the live entertainment world this this is a good question too this one's a this one's a hard one I think I, I immediately go to this place of like, well, it doesn't really matter what I'd want to change because I'll only change what I'm in control of. Like this automatic like defensiveness to the question because it's loaded. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that goes right and a lot of stuff that goes wrong. So it's kind of that. I, that's that's where I approach the the question from a place of a bit of bit uneasiness. But I, I think that's that's totally fine. That's how we grow. I think. My experience as a GSM has kind of, and, and seeing how, uh, I guess, the role, how, watching how the role was fleshed out in uh, my, my previous job in Macau and then actually acting in the role in, in Cirque on a big top touring show, specifically for the GSM role, something that I've thought about is I do feel like there needs to be a bit more of an elevation in terms of the knowledge that they're given in, in, in general stage management, the knowledge that they kind of should be privy to, I think should be more. I think GSM should sit in on meetings of like upper management discussions like, a, like the AD and the TD and kind of even bigger, depending on whether the show is co-owned or where it exists. If there is a, a meeting that is above the general stage manager, I do feel like they should be included because they're in such a vital position to kind of steer things steadily and as, as easily and as smoothly and with hopefully without incident as well, that more information, the better. Because just because I'm getting all of this information doesn't mean I'll drown in it. I'll filter out what I don't need. And I think that's kind of 
something that I've noticed from those from those two environments, just talking from those two environments, something I saw that could that could really benefit that role is it, it being elevated in terms of like discretion and information. Perhaps the other way too, you feeding information up on how the operation actually works. Because a lot of the time there can be, and I'm not particularly talking about the entities that you're talking about, maybe other shows I've worked on, but there's a disconnect between the people making the decisions on on what's happening with the show and what's actually really happening on the ground. And again, from a conduit, and but it also takes a certain type of person to be able to have the capacity, like we're talking about a, a very senior stage management position, having a capacity to to step up and understand, because you've got to respect that, you know, these are, it's a money, it's a business after all, not just creating art, you know, and there's priorities. And sometimes hearing that information at the upper level can be personally on your own creative sort of heart saying this is the wrong way right but you have yeah. to take that from understanding and, and and feeding up the importance of the things that you're doing and I, I think that that dialogue and you being in that position if, if you're present in those meetings is a two-way street right yeah definitely and I think a lot of the time as well well actually I don't know this this could this is really just a potential assumption of that there's uh if for example like between between uh, your your immediate I guess superior in a way would be the the artistic director working in the artistic division with within stage management if that's the setup, which it usually is. There's so much, again, coming from the place of wanting to be helpful and useful. There is so much that the the artistic director needs to deal with that's larger than the show because it's it's everything from market and kind of how the show's received and they worked in in depth with like PR front of house like that kind of stuff as well there's so many other things going on rather than just the artistic integrity of the show when your information is passed on to them they're filtering your information that's really only necessary to pass on to the people that they that he or she the AD needs to pass on and I think kind of elevating that GSM role definitely will kind of really like set set the set individuals apart in terms of their qualifications because a GSM in more of that senior role as you described it definitely is a different kind of person than someone who's just a GSM on the show and doesn't worry about or doesn't need to worry about that kind of upper level stuff even though it may be beneficial to their own productivity so it's yeah I'm glad you mentioned that because it is a bit of a double-edged sword because then it kind of I guess introduces other necessary levels for people to to potentially be more involved in the production I guess that's when you put in deputies and leads and that kind of stuff so you kind of may need to to jig with the format I don't know that was the first thing that came to mind though when I thought about the question I guess other things is in in generally I think if a show is big enough and it warrants it there should be some in-house some kind of in-house counselling available, even like once or twice a week on site, something like that, that people can like freely sign up at a green room or a kitchen and throw their names down. And it's almost like the way that, you know, shows have a Pilates instructor come in for three hours on a Wednesday afternoon kind of thing. It could kind of be a similar gig for, for someone in that, someone that works with mental health. Because I think even though there are lots of organisations out there that uh, people can reach out to, People do not do it. I don't think people really utilize the tools that are available to them. And I don't know whether it's out of laziness or, or just putting it on the back burner. Yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to, I'll get to it when I have a meltdown kind of vibe. Like, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but I, I don't know if, if people are really pursuing these things. I know I have personally, like when, 
when I've kind of hit rocky times, I've used BetterHelp because it was an app and it was international and it worked with the different time zones of touring. So that was really great when I kind of decided to kind of reach out. And that was, that was awesome. But I think on-site was on-site mental health in some capacity for larger shows is, would be a, a really great move. I say that because when I was on Volta and we had the tragic fatality of an artist, we, that's the support that we were given on, on tour. We were in Tampa and they had very, very quickly a, a mental health professional like grieving counsellor come to site and work with everyone and be available almost all of the time. And that was a really serious situation that definitely warranted that act. And it was great that Cirque facilitated that for us. But I really noticed then how valuable, how valuable it was and how valuable it could be long-term. Given, given that it can be afforded by the production, like I don't, there's so many, there's so many things that kind of the arts runs into in terms of what's feasible that it's kind of sometimes a shame that things might not be as accessible as we'd like them to be. I think that's an amazing answer, and and I I think you know breaking the stigma by putting it in part of the operations is part of it, right? And and mm. you know we train our physical bodies. Why why would we not be training our mind as well? And I just there's what for me there's it's one and the same, and especially uh, you know you practice yoga and and as well as I do, and, and it's all about this mind body spirit um, balance, you know. And if you're training just your body and you're not cultivating your mind or your spirit, there's, you know, it's it's going to be, um, you know, on the long term, you're starved in that in that aspect if you're not cultivating that as well. And and I would really like to see that kind of change too. And to put somebody in that system as if it's a normal thing, like a coach or a trainer or a specialist mm-hmm. thing. Like a physiotherapist for your body, you've got them on tour. Why don't you have a person that there's, you know, because equally yeah. I'm sure that there's ramifications of the mental health uh, that have ramifications on the show. And wouldn't it be interesting if you put it on a show for like, say, uh, tw- one show, one Cirque show for 12 months and see what the the, the ramifications on staff retention, um, overall quality of show. Do you know what I mean? Like you could you could try and tangibly because I'm a data person, right? Figure yeah, yeah, yeah. out what what is the what is the the tangible difference that you can achieve by having somebody, and maybe that investment then comes in return. You know, if you don't have if you have to change three, four less people out of a show, I mean, that's casting, it's travel, it's it's visas. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that could be one person's salary, right? So, sure. um, you know, it could balance out in that way, and 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 it's. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that up. I'm gonna if ever, I'm in an opportunity where that becomes a thing, I'm gonna put it in the I'm gonna put it in the budget. <laughs> yeah, awesome, awesome. Sure. I wonder if there's like any dance companies or any other kind of tours or companies in general that have done it. Maybe people listen to that and they they have it in place and they can tell us what their experience is. Yeah, amazing. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah, so if anyone listening has an experience of that, please let us know. We'd love to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Oh, this has been great. Thank you very much, Nathan. It's been good to talk to you and learn from you and hear all your experience, all the time you're sharing with us. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been really, really great. It's always a a blessing to have a yarn with Anna and meeting a new friend named Anna is fantastic too. (laughs) Likewise, thank you. Thanks for your time, Nathan. Thanks.
Please write a review on our podcast whenever you listen to our podcast and let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life by visiting our website at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on social media and leave your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, or YouTube. We really want to thank David Zaya for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Sharotta, who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world.